Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 28, 2019. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive reader, and I'm your moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 26, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,204. That's 13204. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 13,205. That's 13205. This morning, A Vision for You presents Knowing Bill W. Chapter 1 of the Big Book is devoted to Bill W.'s story. It's a frightening, vivid, and detailed account of one alcoholic's descent into the madness and mayhem of alcoholism. It is also the inspiring and uplifting story of his complete recovery and his resulting mental, physical, and spiritual health. It is this humbling of Bill in the presence of powerlessness, this whittling down of his puffed ego, this forced confrontation with his essential finiteness, which ultimately allows Bill to embrace a spiritual remedy to his alcohol problem. Bill W.'s story gives us inspiration and hope as we see that even someone hopelessly addicted to alcohol, as Bill Wilson was, can recover. And if he can, so can anyone. Here to present Bill's story and bring it to life based on her personal experience is Terry C., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. It's with great great pleasure and appreciation that I welcome Terry C. to the line this morning. Good morning, Terry. Thank you, Leah. Can I be heard? I hear you well. Okay, thank you. Um, I purposely stayed unmuted so that perhaps in all of the states and countries in which people are listening, they couldn't hear my heart beating as hard as and fast as it is. So um, I'm going to start this morning with the third step prayer, and for those of you standing shoulder to shoulder with me, feel free to say it along with me. God, I offer myself today to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness. To those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. I'm Terry C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. And I'm really excited, as I mentioned to Leah earlier in a text, to talk about Bill's story, and that's even a surprise to me. Um, I'm going to start with a high-level elevator story qualification of my experience in OA, and then we'll jump into Bill and his story. Um, I came into the program in 91. I had earned my seat. Um, you could see that I had earned my seat. I was five one. I'm five one and a half. That hasn't changed. <laughs> Actually, it's going down probably. I'm five one and a half, and um, I weighed at my highest over 215 pounds. I'm not sure really where that ended up. Um, I uh, I lost control with food probably in my teens, but I have euphoric recall of um, exactly how you know food played an important and as Bill says exhilarating part of my life. Uh, I um, you know like many of you I had um, you know this story of home that led to a lot of 
um, circumstances and situations that um, constantly led to the buildup of human emotions, as is often shared on this meeting. I'm going to talk a little bit about how some of mine parallel with Bill's. Uh, when I came into the rooms, um, I didn't really understand and nor could I accept or be humble enough until 1993 um, that I had, it was then that I conceded that I was definitely powerless over food. And so um, I, I came into the room in 91. I put down my alcoholic foods in 93. Um, I'd love to tell you it was bliss after that. Um, I haven't had a relapse back into my alcoholic foods, but that doesn't make me any different than the next person that struggles with food being their master because I was in the rooms and food was still my master because abstinence was the most important thing in my life for a very long time. And it wasn't until about 2006, um, actually it was about four years before that, four or five years before that, I met my Ebby in the rooms. And I had various sponsors in the rooms, and many of them were the poster children of abstinence and food plans. And um, when I found my Ebby, she was the first person in the rooms who really talked more about God. And, you know, I hadn't been introduced, or I hadn't, I hadn't had an appreciation for the book on the first 164 pages and doing the steps the way they were outlined in the book. I did the steps the way everyone I thought I knew something, or I did the steps the way everyone who I thought knew something did the steps. So that was quite different. And um, when I met her, she was doing kind of the same thing, but she had an understanding and appreciation of God that attracted me. And um, eventually she was to lead me to a lot, she was, she was to lead me to my spiritual development. And she, I'm not sure she quite knows that, um, but in looking at that, that's pretty much what happened. And so about 2006, 2007, um, I heard about an AA group through her doing a big book step study and, you know, having been unfulfilled at that point and knowing there was something more, I went to that big book step study eventually uh, God always coaxes, coaxes me very gently everywhere in my development and my recovery and from there um, I went to a, a seven week uh, big book step study called back to the 40s which gave me a real awareness for the you know the uh, unpasteurized program and what was really done in the early days and um, and then 2016, I was doing the steps the way that I thought they were to be done, and I was angry at everyone. And I knew that wasn't a good combination. I knew something was wrong. And there was a visionary who I was familiar with because she was in my area. And I knew the day that I really did not want to call her, that I had to call her. And when I called her, she questioned my steps 10 and 11. And as I told her about how I practiced them, I realized I knew nothing. So I'm grateful to her. I'm grateful for this meeting where I have really had a, a healthy, or I really get, in, I was introduced and I have access to a healthy version of um, recovery. And now today I can honestly say I'm recovered. I understand my purpose. 
and every day I tried hard to be a better servant. So with that said, let's get back to Bill. Um, and you'll see a lot of my story reflected in some of the parallelisms of Bill and as we go through the pages. Um, I, I need to say that for someone born in 1895, having a lot in common with someone born in 1957, um, I wouldn't quite think that to be true. Um, I especially wouldn't think it to be true in Bill's story was my first introduction to Bill. Well, actually, I read As Bill Sees It before I even was introduced to and, and had a commitment to studying the book. And so I got some perspective on who he was, and I saw some similarities. But um, someone that kind of looked like Jimmy Stewart to me and uh, used words like maelstrom uh, to describe Wall Street and John Barleycorn to describe alcohol. Um, and my favorite one, my wife's slender purse. Slender had a whole different meaning to me than describing a purse. Um, that was just something where, you know, Bill's story was interesting to me. I, you know, I could have some identification with it. Um, but I still had that standoff, standoffishness that I um, wasn't quite sure I could really embrace it the way I do today. And I do embrace this story. So before I get into it, I'd like to just talk about Bill and how I relate so much to his formative years, um, how you might see some of the parallelisms that perhaps you hadn't recognized in the past. Um, his circumstances, his situation, Bill was the oldest of two children. Um, he had a popular dad, a man that a lot of people um, enjoyed being with. That was my dad. Um, he had a dad who for the short time he spent with him in his lifetime seemed to have adored him. Um, I had that same opportunity. Uh, he lost the connection with his father when his parents separated and divorced. I had that same grief. Um, his parents divorced in his tweens or preteens and uh, I had that experience as well. Um, Imagine in the early 90s experiencing your parents being divorced. I experienced that in the 60s and the shame and embarrassment that that brought um, at that period of time to me was hard to bear. I can't imagine what that was like in Bill's culture and uh, upbringing. Um, because of his parents' situation and their well-being, he moved several times when he was a young person. I did the same. Um, he was, he lived with grandparents. He was raised by his grandparents. I also did the same. Um, he had a mother who probably, um, I don't know whether clinically diagnosed, but, you know, was spiritually sick, had, you know, um, emotional suffering. I had that same experience. Um, I, there are many other parallelisms, and in his recovery, um, he received sobriety and when he was 40. Um, I got abstinent when I was 36. So um, that's just a couple of the things in his formative years that I could really relate to and I really see now led to the story that begins on page one. And, um, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, again, shoulder to shoulder, how 
we all might relate to some of the things Bill talks about. And the eye-opener for me when I really studied this chapter was just on the first page, just on the first page. There is so much that I relate to that just really tells big chunks of my story. And um, when uh, in the very first paragraph, Bill talks about he discovered liquor and he associates the word excitement in the midst of the excitement. The next couple pages, as I mentioned, he uses the word exhilarating. You know, liquor was an important part of his life. Um, food was definitely an exhilarating and exciting part of my life. Um, I can clearly qualify with that by saying I'm Italian. I'm raised Italian. That's my ethnic background. Um, family times, family matters, family celebrations all revolve around food. I have euphoric recall of foods when I was a toddler. Um, it was reward. I have a cookbook that's one of my favorite cookbooks that says, eat this, it'll make you feel better. Um, I was laughing thinking about the fact that in my family, conversation was about food inventories. Um, you know, if you visited someone and you were post-breakfast, what did you have for breakfast? If you were post-lunch, what did you have for lunch? And if you were post-dinner, that was an exciting conversation. So, I mean, that's, you know, as insane as that is, um, I can relate to the excitement at an early age. I can relate to it even as I lost control of food. It was exciting. It was, you know, when I got to college and it was exciting to have, you know, the freedom to you know, kind of really, unfortunately, just totally enmesh myself in food, you know, enmesh myself in food and food times as they were. Um, I thought that this was worth repeating. It's something that always struck me in AA Comes of Age, just to talk about how we develop this dependency, this comfort that leads to disaster at a very early age. Um, Bill says, when I was a child, I acquired some of the traits that had to do with my insatiable craving for alcohol. I was brought up in a little town in Vermont under the shadow of Mount Aeolus. An early re recollection is that of looking up at the vast and mysterious mountain wondering what it meant and whether I could ever climb that high. But I was presently distracted by my aunt, who, as a fourth birthday present, made me a plate of fudge. For the next 35 years, I pursued the fudge of life and quite forgot about the mountain. When I first read that, it was ironic that I related to fudge a lot more than Bill did, but um, the idea that the excitement of whatever it is that gives us comfort often robs us of the goals in our life and the aspirations in our life. And I weaken to it. I weaken to it. So um, the next thing on page one is I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol at the bottom of the first paragraph. Loneliness was something Bill talks about a lot, and I certainly relate to. He talks about being tortured by loneliness. Um, he talks about, uh, and this is, this is a description from the grapevine, and I 
I definitely relate to this. Maybe you will too. I had lived as an alien in a cosmos that too often seemed hostile and cruel. In it, there could be no inner security for me. That to me, I relate so much to his personal description of loneliness there um, because having some of the experiences he had, and you've had some of them too, and if you haven't had them, I, I respect and appreciate some of the matters and situations that happened like broken families. I, had a, I lived with a very discontent and irritable grandmother. Um, I had a fat adolescence with lots of shame, lots of, lots of shame and isolation. Um, I was an affection-starved affection woman and person, constant persecuting, constantly persecuting myself, never being good enough. I mean, all of that just leads to constant, constant loneliness. And he talks about that being hostile and cruel. No one was necessarily hostile and cruel, although people can be, but I constantly perceive the world as being that. I mean, it's kind of like when we get to our fourth steps, you know, um, we always saw people as being wrong. Well, you know, a lot of times it was how personally I took everything. So the other thing on page one, and I know we will move on because page one just has so much to offer to me. Um, and this is the strongest one for me. I fancied myself a leader towards the bottom of the page. I fancied myself a leader. Oh boy, I definitely fancied myself. And I looked up the word fancied. It means feel a desire or liking for. So I feel a desire and liking for myself. That self-importance, as Leah mentioned, Leah mentioned that egoism, you know, the ego. And, um, I love this definition of egoism, the doctrine that self-interest is the proper goal of all human action. And of course, this most relative one to our program is opposed to altruism. So, you know, Bill talks on page two and three about being important. He had to prove he was important to the world. And I felt that same drive. I felt that same drive. I was the oldest of six. Um, you know, I was the center of the universe until my brother came, and that importance just stayed with me. I wanted that really, really bad. Um, this is one more reading, and then I'll, I'll just stick to Bill's story in the book, but these are all relative to how we can get insight and really identify with, with what, who Bill was. And this also is in AA Comes of Age, and he says, in my teens, I had to be an athlete because I was not an athlete. I had to be a musician because I could not carry a tune. I had to be the president of my class in boarding school. I had to be first in everything because in my perverse heart, I felt myself the least of God's creatures. I could not accept my deep sense of inferiority. And so I strove to become captain of the baseball team and I learned to play the fiddle. Lead I must or else. This was the all or nothing kind of de demand that later did me in. I mean, that says it all. I mean, that's kind of my story. Uh, I, I had to be the best. Um, I couldn't, you know, I remember telling my children, and I kind of refrain from doing it now, but, you know, I remember saying to them, especially my son, as he hit his, you know, early career days, uh, as he's still in them, but, you know, if the gold ring's there, you got to grab it. 
you got to grab it. And, you know, you got to be the best. And, you know, um, I had a poster in college that said, to be good is not enough when you dream of being great. And I, as inspirational as that is, I have, um, I have some healthier thoughts about that today. Um, you know, Bill, we, we understand on page two and three about how he wanted to be important. He wanted to be successful. Of course, you know, especially those of us who live in America and, you know, we have that rite of passage, rite of passage dream. I mean, you know, that's, that's what he was, he was groomed to do, you know, be better. His, his grandfather, who loved him so much, you know, kind of wanted him always to take the challenge, and, and he accepted it. Um, you know, in high school, in college, in my career, in my family, I always wanted more. I wanted the best. Unfortunately, somewhere that transposed into perfectionism, and in the process, I became my God because I thought I could make that actually happen. And, of course, we all know where that ends up. So um, that's, page, that, that's, that's page two and three. And, and, you know, also on page three, um, drink was an important part of my life. Food was an important part of my life. It assumed serious proportions, continuing all day and all night. Um, you know, food was so important that in my disease and even in my recovery, um, I was an isolated person. You know, I was, I was overweight, didn't have a lot of friends, stuck with my family. And, of course, at work, I was the band leader. You know, I was the most, you know, I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the best. And, um what I really was during the day was restless, irritable, and discontented. And that one saying in the OA 12 and 12, we worked hard during the day. We ate hard at night. You know, Bill worked hard during the day. He drank, drank eventually during the day, but I'm sure in the beginning he drank hard at night. Um, this, you know, this idea and this expression that um, he was a lone wolf, he was successful, but he was a lone wolf in that no one could understand what it's like when food or alcohol becomes your master. You don't hear, you don't see the humanness going on around you because at least I didn't. I shut it off, you know. I shut it off. Food becomes that important and self-hate just prevails. Um, on page four, when I tell my story, I always talk about the fact that, or when I talk about Bill's story, I always talk about the part in my story that relates to the market crashing. Um, the market didn't crash for me. My life was crashing around me. And if you've heard my story, and I think I shared this on another special edition, that, um, you know, I remember my bottom so well. I remember a morning when my husband and my six-month-old, maybe six-month-old son, looked at me both. My husband was holding my son. They were both frightful, looking at this person who had just had this tirade, who had just had this breakdown in her household on a Sunday morning. And while they both looked at me trying to see if I could actually come back to reality and maybe have some sense of humanness and not be this monster that I had turned into while they looked at me with tears 
streaming down both their faces. I went back to eat my breakfast, which was loaded with starch and all my alcoholic food. And I knew when I was sitting there that it was an insane scene, but I also knew that there wasn't a darn thing I could do to change it because this was my lot in life. And when he says I went back to the bar, I can I just will always remember eating that breakfast and knowing that food was definitely my master at that point. So, um, you know, excitement, as I understand it, is the first stage of addiction. Um, necessity is the second stage, and he talks about that at the, the top of five. Um, that morning for me was clearly an indication that it was a necessity. Um, and then it had to be stopped. On that page, it also says, I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting a call and I'm hoping that you're not hearing it. So I'm just going to continue as if you're not. Um, where had been my high resolve? You know, he talks about another drunk. He talks about the fact that there had been no fight at the bottom of five. Over and over and over again, I did not have the strength to fight it. I, just like him, where had been my high resolve? I was an intelligent person. I knew that this behavior was insane. I knew it wasn't normal to actually throw a pan across the room, have your kitchen in shambles, have your husband and your son looking at you like you're a monster, your infant son looking at you like you're a monster, and not even have the sympathy for them to go and do something so selfish as only to care about eating. It sounds like caveman behavior. So um, was I crazy? You know, was I crazy? That's at the bottom of five. You know, one of my favorite AA speakers says, when you think you're crazy, you're closer to the solution than you think. And I didn't realize that, but thank God. That's, that's my bottom. That's when I started to question it. So um, the third stage of addiction he talks about on page six oblivion the market would recover but I wouldn't that was a hard thought should I kill myself no not now then a mental fog settled down gin would fix that two bottles and oblivion oblivion you know um, I don't I don't know if any of you can relate uh, I know that for me um, I, I'm married to the, the male version of Lois. I have been so blessed with a wonderful husband. Um, my wonderful Al-Anon husband is, um, you know, I didn't steal from his slender purse, but I can tell you that he is the most generous, giving person that I know, the most honest person that I know. Um, like Lois, um, you know, my sponsor would call him the voice of reason. You know, he would reason with me, um, especially in the rooms, you know, when I finally started listening to him. Um, but here, oblivion was still important to me because I was never going to see the goodness in my life. I was never going to see the goodness in my life. I was never going to see the gifts around me. And boy, God stuck them there, and, and he, he, he let me have them. He let me have them because I'm still married to him today. Um, the courage to do battle wasn't there. Yep, so many times do I want to check out with food. 
so many times that I want to check out with food. I love food so much that I think eventually that's why I never became so suicidal. I really think that, you know, food was just always the answer. It was always going to be the answer. And I guess for me, um, I didn't have to go that route. I mean, I was obviously committing suicide, just hadn't made the decision to do it another way. So, um, so then the first step on page eight. Quicksand stretched all around me. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Um, I can remember, um, oh, I'm sorry, mixed up my cards here a little bit. I have some notes. Um, I'm sorry, Bill talked about hospitalizations, starts to talk about his hospitalizations on page seven. I wasn't a really good dieter, but I tried a few. I liked food too much. I really didn't want to diet. You know, I was one of those people that said, well, you know, maybe I'm just going to eat this way and I'm, you know, this roly-poly little Italian. Maybe that's just my lot in life and I'm going to stay this way because I couldn't imagine giving up food. Um, but the diet, I'll consider my hospitalizations. Um, and I will consider that I did go to a five-day outpatient treatment um, and where I learned um, about my alcoholic food. Um, and, you know, I got knowledge. I got knowledge. I got knowledge about, you know, zero sugar tolerance. I got knowledge about, um, you know, um, how to order out. I uh, got a lot of knowledge, and the fact of the matter was food was so important to me. Even being abstinent, and I could talk about that a little bit, um, but even being abstinent, I came into these rooms, and when abstinence is the most important thing to you, like it was to me, I was still worshiping food, you know? I, I remember going to meetings, and so often the conversation before and after meetings were about food, recipes, new, new things we discovered. I mean, it was still, there was still an underlying obsession there. Um, so my, my diets, and then eventually, um, you know, when I got abstinent, they were, to me, my brief hospitalizations. They were, for me, the idea that I had to refrain. Um, I can remember being at a conference in um, Hershey and standing in front of the mirror and seeing that the dress that I had put on, I had just tore the tags off of and I had gone, you know, up 10 pounds, down 10 pounds. And so now, you know, I bought this new dress, but thinking to keep this dress, I would have to keep eating the way I had just dieted, which really wasn't my concept. I really wanted to go on a diet and get off a diet. So something that day made me feel doomed. You know, it really made me feel doomed. So, um, yeah. So um, my 12th stepper, the person that 12th stepped me into the rooms was a, a, a therapist. A therapist who said, um, there's a place for people with food addiction. Um, and I hadn't even gone to that therapist because of my weight. I had gone to that therapist because I had had, um, I had had my son, and I was pretty convinced that I might have postpartum depression. So I went to him um, for what might have been a panic attack, 
And after saying to him, just like our OA 12 and 12 says, after saying to him for the kind of the 20th time, if I could just lose weight, I know my life would be better. I know. I know my life would be better. And finally, he said, there's a place for people with food addiction. And I didn't even think he was talking about me. Um, that's how that's how unfamiliar I was with what was going on with me. And um, and I can remember coming to my first meeting, and I call it my suit of armor. Because remember, I was successful. So, you know, I came from corporate my corporate office and my ivory tower to see what uh, – I was also a good codependent, so I followed directions, what he told me, because he had a, you know, a medical degree, and I didn't. So I, I came to the meeting in my suit of armor thinking that, um, you know, these people probably weren't really going to be able to offer me anything. And they didn't. They didn't offer me anything. But what I observed was something that I didn't have, and that was peace, joy, um, and an idea of living without food, living without their favorite foods. Um, and that was pretty scary to me and pretty intriguing. So um, on page eight, I definitely relate to being catapulted into a fourth dimension of existence, but that didn't happen to me soon after I got into the room. That really didn't happen to me until I started really understanding the steps the way they're outlined in the book. What I did get was, eventually in my first five years, I did get an understanding that I had an addiction, that I was addicted to these foods, that it was an illness. I got some of the basics, almost the basics of steps one, two, and three, since they're acknowledgement steps. You know, I kind of understood that, um, you know, that, that I did have to, I was doomed, and I would have to do something different for the rest of my life. But here's where my egoism became an asset because I got into the rooms and in the meetings that I was going to, which were tool-based, if you were abstinent, you were a hero. And I really liked being a hero. I was groomed to be a hero. So, you know, I really was determined to be your hero. And I was determined to be your food sheriff. And I was, you know, I was predetermined to be you know, the Olympian, the poster child, I did not want to be taken off that pedestal. I enjoyed it very much. It fed me. It fed me in a sick way. It fed me. So for a long time in the room, abstinence prevailed, food plan prevailed. I didn't even understand the difference. thought they were the same thing. Today I realized there's a difference. And I really, you know, look back on it as it's, was just my journey. It was just my journey. I, 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 I try to help people not have the same journey because I know today I didn't have to have that journey. And I'm not saying people didn't talk to me about the steps. You know, I did the steps every year. That was my thing. I did them every year. Now, I could still do them every year, but they would be, would be differently for me today. I would actually be doing it to develop more spiritually. Then I did them because I didn't know what else to do. I kept doing the steps. But see, when I did the steps, the steps were really getting that fourth step done. I know, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody. 
But when I did the steps, the big bad monster and the obstacle and the mountain that I had to get over was the fourth step. So when I, once I got over the fourth step and I did a fifth step, I thought that that was a toboggan and I'd just be going down from there. It was pretty easy. I had gotten it. Yep, had a general understanding of six and seven, a general understanding of eight and nine, and tried to do nine at times. But I'm not even sure. I paid attention to 10, 11, and 12 at that point. I'm really not sure. And eventually, as I mentioned, I knew that there had to be something more. And my Ebby showed up, and she talked about God. And after a few years, kind of riding a wave with her of how do we do this? How do we do these steps? I guess we do these steps every year. Is that what we do? But eventually, she heard the word. She heard the idea of spiritual experience. She adopted that concept, and I got to ride that wave with her. I got to come along. We took that scuba dive together. And then, you know, I par I, for me, the parallelism is Evie showing up, you know. Evie showed up when I got to go to those big book workshops, and I got to hear people talk about being recovered. And on page 10, it talks about being shocked but interested at the top of the page. When Ebby came, he, Bill was shocked but interested. He, um, on page 11, he adopted the parts that were convenient but not difficult. That's kind of how I handled my, my religion and my spiritual life, you know. I adopted up until that point, up until the parts where I, up until the part in my life where I really started to dive in and not be afraid of understanding the spiritual experience, I just adopted what was convenient and not difficult. And I was brought up Catholic, so what was convenient was just kind of understanding that if the God of my understanding would just kind of at a distance kind of just be there in case I needed him, that would be okay because whenever he got close to me, I usually had trouble going on. Like usually he brought chaos into my life or loss or tragedy. So if he just kind of stayed over there, um, that was okay. Um, so I guess I relate a lot to two that I would snap shut, you know, when when they talked of God, I'm on the bottom of 10, when they talked of a God personal to me, um, with love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. That is so true for me. Um, you know, I didn't think of God as always love. Superhuman strength, maybe, and definitely not taking direction from him because I didn't really think he offered direction. I just thought he offered punishment or he offered... Um, judgment, judgment for sure, judgment. So I definitely wanted to snap my mind shut against anything like that. And uh, so I, I just really relate to what Bill says and kind of how he reacted to Eddie. Um, but the thing that was so relative with Eddie um, to me, and, and, and I'm just going to focus on these pages because they're my favorites, um, 12 and 13, page 12 and 13. See, Bill already, before Ebby came along, conceded that, you know, alcohol was his master. 
he knew he had a problem. He knew that alcohol just had him in its grip. Um, but Ebby came along, and what Ebby offers new to him is the idea of religion or God. And, you know, Ebby said, I've got religion. Bill understood what he really meant. You know, he had some understanding of God that Bill didn't have. And to me on page 12, the real change for Bill was in the italicized paragraph. And it's the basic. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. See, I relate to Bill who had to be the athlete because he wasn't the athlete. He had to be the musician because he wasn't the musician. He had to be all those things he wasn't because when God as a loving being is missing in your life, you have to excel. You have to get to the point where you're the power. Like I relate to that so much. And here's Bill saying, I just had to believe in a power greater than me. And to do that, I had to have humility. And that humility for Bill was profound. And that is so helpful to me because humilis, I think, the root word of humility is low, low importance of self. You know, that wasn't my story up until I got to understand that a spiritual experience was vital. I was really, even in the rooms, as I told you, I wanted to be the hero, the abstinence, the abstinence poster child. Humility was not anything I was practicing regularly. At least it didn't feel like it. It doesn't, didn't appear like it when I look back on it. Um, a power, nothing more, than was, nothing more was required to make a beginning. And I just, you know, I know we read those paragraphs and the italicized ones are the most important. But I'm humbled to know, and I know that that, for Bill, that experience for Bill, like me, is just the most important thing in my life. It's the turning point. You know, it's, it's, you know I didn't have, I didn't have the, the wind and, you know, the, 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 I didn't have that, that experience Bill had. I didn't have that sudden spiritual upheaval. I didn't have that. It came very gradual to me. However, the idea that God could be, you know, the idea that there could be something that could be greater than me then was a convincing concept that it could help me. And that's exactly what that means to me when I know Bill was convinced that, that he just had to be willing to believe in a power greater than himself. That, to me, is like it says on page 25. What's the solution? Accepting spiritual help. To me, there's a solution. It's a statement at the top of the page, and the last few words on the bottom of the page are the answer, accepting spiritual help. And that, there's so much I could say about that, so I'm going to try to get my thoughts clear just to wrap that up and go on to the next page. But for me, and I, and I, and I relate so much to, to Bill's transformation at this point, you know, understanding that we need help, Cannot, can, can come easily when you're really beaten down by food. <laughs> that can come easily. Accepting that that could come from a power greater than me, that humility, that humbling is transforming, and it's, it's just 
it's life-saving. It was life-saving for me. I'm sure it was life-saving for Bill because of all of the self-importance, self-centeredness, self-focus, egoism, pride, all of the things that had built up, had hardened so much in me, and it seemed like they had in Bill also. But see, that egoism is also on page 13 when I read this and I think to myself, yeah, like I'm that important. If Evie's going to have this, I'm going to have it too. I'm going to have it too. I'm sorry, it's on page 12. He says, would I have it at the end of that paragraph? Of course I would. Like when I read that, I think of the person that says, if he's going to have it, I'm getting it. And, you know, a little bit of egoism comes in there because I'm that important. If he can have it, I can have it. And regardless of whether it's used incorrectly or not, it was helpful. It became an asset at that point because he wanted that. He wanted it. He knew Ebby had it, and he wanted it. And, you know, it's kind of like my friend, why not me? You know, it's kind of like a conversation or a, or a um, kind of a, a natural reaction in our culture. Why not me? Why not me? You know? So, um, yeah, the, the uh, let's see. Oh, Bill says something, um, a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. I think that's on the bottom of 12. Yeah, humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. You know, he talks about how he relates that experience. He's talking about the experience at Manchester Cathedral and in how he's reliving that. He's reliving that all over again. There were a couple, There was another time in his early life that he talked about that, that that happened to him. It was actually before Winchester Cathedral. I had that same experience. I remember being in high school and being at a, a retreat. And I had this, this loneliness that told me to search for God. This loneliness, this isolation, and this despair that told me to search for God. And I was at this retreat. I think I was 17 at the time, maybe 16. And um, and I walked outside, and I was by myself, and I really prayed to the God of my understanding at that point. And I can remember stumbling into a thorn bush by accident and then seeing roses. And there was just this, this feeling that I had that there was the presence of God, like there was the presence of God. And I've often kind of recapped it, but not in a profound way because it frightened me. But I realized that, you know, just like Bill, soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and has been so ever since. Whether it was when I was a 17-year-old or whether it was when I first came into the rooms and people talked about God and I got an inkling of step three and turning my will and my life over to him or understanding, you know, that... He was going to restore me to sanity. Worldly clamors always prevailed. You know, selfishness always prevailed. Egoism always prevailed. You know, often blotted out by worldly clamors, the fudge. You know, the fudge in life, the comfort. You know, what's going to make me feel better? Sometimes it's feeding my ego. Sometimes it's just feeding me. I don't know. Um, so, um, and forgive me if my story's not being as continuous. But so many parts of Bill's story bring me back to earlier days, days in recovery. They kind of bring me all over the place, and, and I guess that's why I relate so much to him. 
Um, so the bottom of 13, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. That statement makes me extremely grateful for so many things in my life that are still part of my spiritual development. The vision for you meeting, the network of people that I've met in meeting and other meetings and in the rooms that helped me stay in 10, 11, and 12. The spiritual mentors that I listen to, some which are passed on, some of which are still here, some of which I attend meetings where they guide me. Um, the book, you know, the book, the, the, every page in the book has an answer for how I'm supposed to live my life, every page. You know, my friend promised me when these things were done, I know he's talking about the steps there, completing the steps, but the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems are in the steps every day, in the book every day. You know, they're always there. And I'm just so grateful for that because I spent a lot of years in the room without that. A lot of years without that. I spent a lot of years in the room worshiping food, worshiping the tools. And I use the tools. Don't get me wrong. I use the tools. I need the tools. But they are not my God. And they, you know, the book, of course, is important to me. But even if I didn't have the book, one of the things I learned on a long vacation I just went on was that I just need to seek God, whether I'm on the moon or I'm on the earth. I just need to seek God. That's my goal. That's my mission. You know, I was I was on a 12-day cruise, and there were meetings that I attended. And for the most part, they tended to be ID meetings, you know, people talking about how they got there. I didn't get to hear all this beautiful message that we get to hear every day on the Vision for You meeting and in our face-to-face -face Big Book Step Study meetings. And I didn't get to talk to my God network as much. Um, but the one thing I knew was that I can seek God no matter where I am. And as long as I'm seeking God, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. I may not be doing the right thing every minute of the day, but as long as I remember the most important thing is seeking God, I'm okay. So, um, you know, I do love the way Bill talks about doing the steps, and I admire the fact that he did them much quicker than I did. <laughs> I think for every hour I took a year uh, that Bill followed the steps. But, um, you know, I, I know that we look at them the same way today. I know that, you know, simple but not easy, the top of 14, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. That's, that sticks for me and Bill regardless of how we did the steps. <laughs> that sticks for us regardless. Um, and then I'd like to talk about 14 and 15 because I never understood 14 and 15 until about four years ago. I really did not understand, particularly the bottom of 14, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for an alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. 
If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. I can relate this to difficult situations in life and, you know, that you've experienced, that I've experienced from the larger to the lesser degree. Um, you know, I lost my dad uh, three and a half years ago. It's going to be four years in December. Um, if you would have asked me, uh, first of all, let me mention that my first fourth step didn't have my dad on it at all because he was my God also for a very long time. Um, eventually, when I did a fourth step solely on my dad, I got to see my part in the relationship, which I was convinced I had no part in the relationship, but I got to see that. Um, through the grace of God in this program, I got to heal my relationship with my father. Um, and um, I was one of the fortunate members of my family who got to spend the best hours, the best ending hours of my father's life with him. Um, I can tell you that if anybody would have told me that I could survive my father's death without eating about 10 years ago, I would say, no way, no how, no way, no how. I was in recovery, abstinent, and thinking about how would I ever stay abstinent through that. So I was doomed to eat if my dad was going to die when I was working the program that way. But I can tell you that God brought me the most wonderful relationship. Was it perfect? No. Was it healed? It was, it was in the process of healing big time. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and I got through that because you taught me that I could survive the certain trials and low spots through work and self-sacrifice. And I have learned a whole new meaning of work and self-sacrifice, just like Bill did. It's not just about calling the newcomer. It's not just about being guide to the steps. It's how can I be helpful to the people about me. And I don't always want to remember that, and I don't always remember that, but I know it's the goal. I know it's what I need to do. I know it's the objective, and that alone is something I'm so grateful for. And another simple example is um, I recently had to say goodbye to my dog of 15 years, and I've been heartbroken about it. And many of you have heard my, my uh, kind of um, some of my spiritual, uh, I don't know, not, not necessarily 10 steps, but you, many of you have listened to me about it. Um, I was vacuuming the other day the favorite spot that my dog laid in on our carpet, and a tremendous, tremendous wave of grief came over me. Because I believe grief, grief emotions are connected. So I believe when you grieve someone, you grieve a lot of your loss. But what I do when that happens now, and it was so clear to me that day, I accept the grief. I know that it's a human emotion. I know that it's there. I know that I can get through it. And I know with certainty that once I'm able to subside my tears and my pain, the next thing I have to do is get out of myself. Whether it's calling somebody, whether it's picking up the book, listening to a meeting, calling a family member, going to the kitchen to do something for my husband that maybe he wasn't able to do for himself in the morning. I don't care what it is. I know today that that's the answer. I know that that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Because, see, God didn't say, well, I was suffering in those tears. You shouldn't be doing that, Terry. That's not necessary. He's saying, I understand the tears. Let's get through them, and then let's get to work. So 
I often say when I came in the room, I didn't even know how to say altruism, let alone know what it meant. I really didn't. Didn't understand the word. And today I know it's the opposite of egoism. It's that selfless concern for the well-being of others, according to the Webster's Dictionary. But I love the zoology definition of altruism. I love the zoology definition. And that is the behavior of an animal that benefits another at its own expense. And that's what it says at the top of, the, of 15, self-sacrifice for others. I so want to get better at that. I do that. I try to do that every day. Some days I'm better than others, but I so want to do that. So um, I think even though there's so much at the end here that I could talk endlessly about, I, I love the promise. On page 15, I love the promise, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have the joy of living, even grieving my dad, even grieving our dog of 15 years, grieving my losses, and I've had many of them. You know, grieving them, even having the difficulty, having to face the things that your adult children decide to do when you, it's not necessarily your script. <laughs> it's not necessarily your script. The joy of living I can still have, even under pressure and difficulty, and that's such a promise that just blows me away as, as every time I read it. And, and one of my favorite AA speakers says, the minute, the second we face the difficulty, we know about the difficulty, we know about the tragedy, we know about whatever it is, if we bring God into that instant, if we bring God into that instant, everything's going to be okay. It may not change the person being gone. It may not change the person being sick. It may not change the person being in the accident. It may not change the flat tire. But our outlook can be one of helpfulness, can be one of constructiveness, you know, productivity. So I just want to end with this. Um, and I can't even believe I got to the right spot at approximately the time that I think makes sense. But um, I'm a bill groupie. I don't want to admit it, but if he was around, I would be such a bill groupie. Um, and so I read a little bit about him, and, you know, I listened to his last address, his last recorded address. If you haven't done so, I highly suggest it. Um, but I learned that Lois actually delivered the last address he prepared. It was two months before he died. It was a celebration of his 36th last drink anniversary, so it was his sobriety celebration that he didn't get to attend. But the whole address centered around an Arabic salutation and it went like this. I salute you and I thank you for your life. So I think it's appropriate just based on how I feel about Bill and just what a, a spiritual mentor he has been to me through his story and what I read about him that um, I salute you, Bill, and I thank you for your life. And with that, I will pass. Thank you so much, Terry, for your captivating and inspirational presentation this morning. Beautiful, beautiful presentation, bringing to life uh, Bill's story threaded together with your personal experience. Thank you very much. The share ID for Terry's presentation, 13,209. That's 13209. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. 
You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please offer your first name and your first letter of your last name as well. Ginger C. Gotcha, Ginger. Jody E. Jody. Simone J. Simone J. Kathy K. Kathy K. Christina L. Christina L. Beverly R. Beverly R. Okay, that's a great group. Everybody, please mute yourself except for Ginger C. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. And Terry, what a beautiful presentation. Thank you so much for coming to the line this morning and sharing what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And I'm just curious um, if you could elaborate a little bit more on how you seek God. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Hi, Ginger. Good morning and thank you. Um, yeah, seeking God. For me, um, my 10 and 11 has a lot to do with my relationship with God. My steps 10 and 11 and 12 have a lot to do with my relationship with God. Uh, I, the practice of those involves a relationship of communicating with God through prayer, through meditation, and through writing. That's part of a routine of mine, but it's also a part of my day. Um, I'm one of those people that tries to pray throughout the day. One of my favorite prayers I learned on the line, it's very short and sweet. I ask your protection and care with complete abandon. Um, it's obviously from the book, but I've turned it into a prayer. Um, seeking God is actually something that I try to conscientiously do throughout the day through helping others, through prayer, through meditation. Um, I, I try to enlarge my spiritual life and remember that enlarging my spiritual life is really seeking a better understanding of God. For instance, when one of you share on the line about your experience with God, um, I want to talk to you. <laughs> you know, I want to talk to you if it triggers something in me. I, I guess, Ginger, my best way to answer that is to not to rest on my laurels and follow through with what I know it's helpful to, to um, feed my spirit and to advance my spirit. Some of that's my daily routine, and some of that is, you know, greater gestures, like, um, you know, going to peaceful places. You know, my husband and I, um, all of a sudden, we have an interest in the national parks. I find God in the national parks. I mean, I don't know if you can find God anywhere, but, you know, there's a certain beauty in nature that now just brings me to God, and that didn't happen for me before. God is where you find him as long as you're seeking him, and um, I hope I answered the question by saying it's, it's just a constant effort in all of my affairs and all that I do. I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Ginger, for your question. Jody E., you're up. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. Thank you so much, Terry, for a wonderful presentation. I really related to it very much. You mentioned that you, in recovery, were isolated as you had been in the disease. 
And I sometimes feel isolated in recovery um, in that my entire abstinence, um, I eat differently than most people. And people know that about me, people in my community. And they tend not to always invite me to things where food is going to be central through food and drink, etc. So uh, how do you keep yourself involved in the world we also that you know we hear on this line often that we need to make our recovery our number one priority and that is my feeling as well so how do you keep from being isolated in your recovery today thank you okay jody thanks for the question there's actually two thoughts that come to mind um i felt isolated 10 years being abstinent and the way I felt isolated was I talked about self-importance and egoism. I just had myself built up to be such a hero in this program, I think. I mean, maybe not consciously, but I think I look back on it now. That, um, you know, I really didn't have to do, I really didn't have to make the connection. I really didn't have to do the self-sacrifice that I find today that is important to my daily process. So I was really isolated in that. I didn't build a fellowship of equals around me. Um, I hate to admit that, but it's the truth. You know, I sponsored people and I had a sponsor, but I was isolated in that, you know, I saw myself as being too important and I didn't really connect or try to engage with or really embrace shoulder to shoulder the fellows that lovingly and gratefully get to communicate with today and exchange with today. Um, the other thing is that, you know, I'm, I'm an addict and that prayer that says, please divorce my thinking of self-pity, self-seeking and dishonest motives, boy, I really pray that hard. Um, and the example is I'm I'm going to say semi-retired, but I don't know if that's denial or not. I'm kind of working now on what will probably be retirement jobs. But um, I get a lot of time. I have a lot of time on my hands. And I try to use it wisely, try to be useful. Um, but I get that kind of tendency to, ooh, just like in the disease, what's going to make me happy today? What do I need to do? Um, I know that when my husband has different, you know, uh, commitments that he keeps, and I don't know who will be out certain nights. I have to make sure that on those nights, I am doing something to connect with my program and my fellows. I don't care if it's a call to a newcomer, a planned call to another fellow, an outreach call. Um, I, I just have to literally plant those things in my schedule because I know what my tendency is. Not that it's not okay to sit down and watch a two-hour movie. Not because I'm not going to give myself that, you know, that little bit of entertainment that I think I deserve. But just so that I can remember that, you know, it's not, you know, I'm alone five to five o'clock till I go to bed. Let's just sit on the couch and have fun, <laughs> which unfortunately sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't for me. So um, I don't know if that helps, but that's that's kind of what I think of when I think of two thoughts of isolation. 
Thank you, Jody E., for your question. Simone J., star one to unmute. Hi, Simone. Um, com- Hi, I'm Simone, compulsive overeater, food addict. Thank you so much. I really identified with so much of what you said. Um, one of the things I, I would uh, ask you to elaborate on more is the idea of the self-sacrifice. Um, being a compulsive helper and people pleaser, I find it really difficult to know the difference between, I'm assuming that that's a healthy statement. <laughs> I just don't know where the health is in it. Okay, that's, you know, that's an interesting question, Simone. Um, the thing that I think of when I think of self-sacrifice today, I'm, I'm also a people pleaser, but I'm usually a people pleaser of authority. So if I think you're an authority, just like it's the way I got in the room. The therapist said there's a place for people with food addiction, and as insulted as I was, he seemed like he was more educated than me. So to please him, I came to L.A. So like... You know, God has a crazy sense of humor, but um, to me, I can see decisions in my life where I made decisions based on pleasing other people that seemed like sacrifices, like the book says, you know, uh, self-seeking, even when trying to be kind. They weren't really giving of myself, truly giving of myself. You know, they were decisions that seemed like Terry was helping someone, but really what Terry was doing she was really trying to gain something. She was trying to get something out of it. And mostly, you know, some of them, like, you know, I really, one of the things I think about in my disease that I did, my son was only, oh, I think he was only four months old. And uh, I was a career person. And I had an opportunity to go to travel to a conference that I didn't have to go to. I could have said no. But the who's who among my company went. And I left my four-month-old with my mother for a week. And, you know, I did that because my boss asked me to go, yada, yada, yada. That was, that was just so selfish. I tried today to take the people that, you know, the people in my life who I love, the people who, you know, are, you know, are, are mentors to me, the people who are, you know, people who... I need to, people who need, who need help, people who need help, there's a difference. You know, they actually need help. I may not even know them, but if I can take the smallest effort to go out of my way for them, that's a sacrifice for me, and those are the things, those are the gestures that God's looking for me to do. And um, that's the self-sacrifice today that means so much more than some of the grand gestures I did to gain personally. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, Simone J., for your question. Kathy K., your turn. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Terry. My name is Kathy K., and I had the same exact question as Simone J., so with that, I will pass. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Christina L., star one to unmute. Good morning. This is Christina L., and um, thanks so much for your service. I came into the, to the, to the meeting late, but I only, so I only heard the last little bit, but what I heard, like, really struck me. You had talked about um, 
your uh, father and not putting him on your four-step inventory. Um, I did put my father on my four-step inventory. However, I put him on my inventory the very first time I ever did the steps, which was through the OA workbook. And I don't feel like I have, like, this grudge or resentment towards him anymore. I see him as a very sick person when I was growing up and, and the stuff that happens. But um, I feel like there's something more that maybe I need to do something more with that resentment, maybe take it through the fourth step again and stuff. But I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, uh, what you, you had said that um, you didn't believe that you had a part in the relationship with your father, like you didn't have a part. Um, and that's kind of like what I feel like. I don't really feel that I have a part because he was, um, he was a, a functioning alcoholic and um, he just, I felt like he used to pick on me and stuff. Um, so I don't know if that makes that question as clear, but um, if you could talk about that, thanks. Sure, Christina, thanks. Something I'm really, really grateful for, really, really grateful. Um, yes, my father was not on my first, first, fourth step. I didn't have any ill feeling toward my father whatsoever. Um, and eventually when I realized, wow, I really was hurt. I was very hurt by my dad. And just to kind of open it up for you a little bit so you understand it, um, it basically, the the short version is that my parents were divorced and remarried, and my father seemed to value his second family more than his first. It appeared to me, seemed to me, my perception. So when I finally got to do the fourth step, the one thing I can tell you that I thought of immediately when you said it, I thought about the transformation as it happened to me, like, wow, yeah, how did I go from, you know, not blaming to blaming to forgiving? Like, how did I do that? But see, I didn't do it. Um, and, I, and, you know, when I work with someone and they're going to do their fourth step, I can't impress enough upon them that every time they sit down to write, that third step prayer, which is the step before, which is a logical order, needs to come into play. Because as long as I'm turning that work over to God, he's going to show me what I need to say. He's going to show me what I need to say. And I was in the process of writing that fourth step and literally it was literally in the process of writing it, went to a meeting, a woman came and shared, and she talked about her relationship with her dad, and her part in the relationship was something I would have never thought of, and it's something God handed me on a silver platter, because she said her relationship with her dad, her part in her relationship was that she never gave her father the opportunity to know her and to have a better relationship with her. And I had punished my dad for not, in my opinion, being fair to his first family by giving us the same time and attention. I punished him by not going to see him. I punished him by staying away. I punished him by, you know, making him think that, you know, I was okay with things that I didn't need to complain about, but just maybe talking to him about who I am, what I was doing, why I was doing it, my thoughts. How I, you know, I just, just, it came to me, and I know that was God. And, and the way I had healing with my dad was I sat down with him one day, and I read him a laundry list of all the wonderful memories and things I was grateful for, to him for. 
and I can't tell you what a God experience that was. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Christina L., for your question. And Beverly R., star one to unmute. Hello, is it my turn, Beverly R.? Indeed. Yes. I don't know if this is a question or not, but I just wrote down what I wrote down. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and that's my prayer to God. Then what I'm saying to myself is, Physician, heal thyself. And I don't know, I I have helped a lot of people in the program, and yet... I still battle with the food, and um, wow, and still, still that um, those mental blind spots because um, there's something I bought and I consumed it all last night, and my sister noted it was finished, and and she and and she said, so why did you buy it in the first place? I said, well. I told myself it was not a binge food and that I only overate on it when I was in a bad mood. And she said, she said it has always been a binge food. And then there's something else and, and that she commented on and said, I noticed you've, you've really started using this. And I said, I thought it was for both of us. She said, how could it be for both of us when it's one of your binge foods? So how... How does one get over these blind spots when one is fooling oneself? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I thank I, you, thank I you, Beverly. You posed a question, and let's hear a response from Terry. Well, if, if I got that all, Beverly, you started off with a scripture that says, "Unto myself." Uh, uh, crying out to the Lord in pain. I, I did get that much. Um, I guess I'm a firm believer that, you know, our, rec- our, our physical recovery, our physical recovery is never going to be, I don't believe, is, ne- is ever going to be handed to us like a miracle. It's never going to be, we pray, boom, we're abstinent. It's never going to be, you know, this um, white light experience. Because for me and for countless others that I talk to, um, God's not going to do for us what we could do for ourselves. So I, you know, the blank spots that I had before getting abstinent, um, those blank spots for me were just agnostic thoughts. Like I didn't, you know, I, I didn't bring God into them. I, you know, I didn't think about God till after the fact. And the practice, because uh, one of my dear friends in the program says this is all about practice, 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 practice. The practice of prayer and thinking about God, and as Ginger said, how do I seek God? You know, I need to do that so regularly during the day because I'm still, you know, I still eat three meals a day. So, you know, the practice of shouting out to God before I'm in that despair and getting kind of doing that regularly and remembering that, you know, God's going to, if I'm willing to put down the food, God's going to help me put it down. But if I'm not willing, God's not going to say, okay, I'll do it for you. 
So I don't know if any of that's helpful, and we could speak more offline, but that's pretty much what comes to mind. Thanks, Beverly R., for your question. We can take two more, approximately. Are there... Marcella M. Hey, Marcella. One more. Star one to unmute if you have a question. All right. Looks like Marcella's question will wrap this up. Go ahead, Marcella. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Terry. So thank you so much for your share. Um, I was really taken by um, your experience being the hero of the group. I've been positioned in this um, role. I've been trying to um, work with others in Spanish for the last five years. And I found myself, to my endless surprise, in this position of being a hero among 1,200 people in Spanish. And unlike you, I don't enjoy my role. Um, I doubt myself every day. I get scared very easily. And I can't wait to step down. <laughs> so my question to you is, how do I step down from my role of hero fast today? Thank you. Well, I'm not sure, you know, how to personally tell you how to do it, but it's in the same situation for me. Um, you know, shoulder to shoulder, that's exactly what I had. I can only parallel it to this morning, right? You know, um, to me, the special editions, they're like the Carnegie Halls of OA to me. <laughs> like, they scare me, and I love them. I love listening to them, and coming on this morning was a frightful experience for me. I did a few fear inventories. However, um, I understand what you're saying. You know, through service, you've you've built up this role that has been successful, and now perhaps, you know, I understand, at least I've been in this situation where it can actually be an intrusion because the quality of your recovery is important too. Um, I can only come back to prayer, like shoulder to shoulder, all meetings belong to God, all groups belong to God. Um, you know, I had, to, I had a miraculous experience with my home group of, my home group just celebrated its 39th year, 39th year. And up until last April, not this past April, the one before, it has been a leader's choice meeting. And several of us were interested in starting a big book step study meeting. And we offered that meeting the opportunity to convert to a big book step study meeting before we would start a new one. And if you would have asked any of us whether that conversion would have taken place, we would have said absolutely not. And the conversion did take place, and it took place willingly. The group conscious was unanimous. And it's just growing to be a healthier meeting every, every week. Um, I wanted that really bad, but the one thing I had to keep in mind was that it was God's meeting. And God's going to help us if he helps, if he helped you accomplish the things that you thought were important to him. He's going to help you accomplish the position or declining the position or whatever the case is that you have to do. I just know that he is. You know, it's, I, I, I don't have a practical answer for you, but I have a hopeful and faithful one that, you know, 
he's giving you the thoughts for a reason. He's going to give you the tools to do it. It's what do we say? We say it's not, it's not courage is an absence of fear. It's doing it anyway. Um, I just know. I know the beautiful work, and I've, I hear you on the lines. So I've heard some of the beautiful work that you've done. Um, you know, Bill knew that he wasn't going to be here forever. He knew that he wasn't going to be here forever, and all he could do was just keep inspiring. You know, his last, I, I mentioned Lois's, Lois gave his last address, and that whole address was based on the value of anonymity. Like, his, that whole address, like, he thought it was really important to talk about the fact that the fellowship would continue because of the pillar of anonymity. And I'm not sure what the pillar is that you could focus on, but I know there's pillars among your groups, your groups that you've created that are going to allow you to see perhaps how to pass the baton. And with that, I'll pass. I hope that helps. And we could talk offline, too. Thanks, Marcella M., for the question. And, of course, thank you so very much, Terry C., for this beautiful presentation this morning. Your helpfulness and humility are obvious. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're going to close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Share ID for the presentation, once again, 13,209. That's 13209. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.